Before we get into today's episode, I want to make sure you heard about our Organized Chaos end of the year giveaway. One lucky winner is going to get a $100 gift card to the Trainual Swag Shop. All you've got to do is go to trainual.com backslash OC survey and enter your email. That's how we'll notify you if you've won. And then just answer a few questions about the show. All of the questions are centered around you, your listening experience. It's the perfect opportunity to provide feedback on what you want more of in the show, and I'll be reading every response. Again, go to trainual.com backslash OC survey, or click on the link in the episode description. We'll announce the winner on December 23rd, 2022. Thanks for participating, and I look forward to building the best possible show for you all as we head into 2023. Now, back to today's episode. We are right now laying the groundwork for who is going to be leading tomorrow, right? That when the world changes is when there's opportunities for people who don't have power. So if you have enough technology to be watching the three of us talk, you have enough technology to show up and lead. And it's not going to be me. It's going to be you. People who get the joke, don't chase some NFT scam, but instead figure out what can create real value for real people and you can build something. Hey everyone, I'm Chris Ronzio, founder and CEO of Trainual, and this is Organized Chaos. On every normal episode, you hear me talk about building your playbook. Well, we actually have an event every year called Playbook over at Trainual, and this session is a clip from Playbook 2022. That's our annual event at Trainual, and it features some of the top business leaders in the world. So we've reformatted these sessions for the podcast so that you can enjoy them wherever you are totally free. This session is hosted by me and Jonathan Ronzio, who is our CMO and my brother. All right, welcome back everyone. This is the session I know a lot of you have been waiting for. We've been seeing the comments on LinkedIn, the comments on Twitter, on Facebook, and I know a lot of you wanna hear from the marketing master himself, Seth Godin, so we'll bring him in. We're so excited to talk to Seth today, and if you don't know who Seth is, first of all, what's wrong with you? Where have you been? <laughs> But he is a renowned TED Talk speaker, marketing hall of famer, mastermind between 20 best-selling books. It's unfathomable to even think about. Tribes, Purple Cow. He's currently running the Carbon Almanac. He created Alt MBA and more than 60,000 people have taken his online courses in marketing, not to mention the 3 million or so people that have seen him speak. And so now you, all of you in the audience, get to be added to that list. And I can't wait to introduce him here. So let's bring him in. Seth Godin, so nice to meet you. Great to meet you. If I'm in the right place at the right time, it's a good day. <laughs> That's a good attitude. It's good to see you again, Seth. This is going to be fun. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, I, I'm going to go deep right away. We've got a lot to talk about, but Seth, with all these best-selling books that have changed the, the lives of so many people, and that have changed the course of people's careers and their ideas. What is a book that has changed your life? Wow. Okay. So I will begin with this. The book that will change your life the most is the book you write. And I think that just about anybody listening to this should write a book. That doesn't mean you should publish it. Doesn't mean you should spend all your time trying to get other people to read it. But I know that writing my blog every single day, which I don't do for financial reasons, 
makes me better because I have to notice things. I have to explain things. I have to put my name on something that I believe. But there are so many books from other authors that have had an impact on me. Pema Chagrin's work, Zig Ziglar's work, Patti Smith's book, Just Kids, um, the uh, range of books on social issues, Cast, which I picked as book of the year a couple of years ago, um, Tom Peters and his work. And I guess if I had to just pick one and put a name on it, I would say um, The War of Art by my friend Steve Pressfield. It's a great place to start. Mm, incredible recommendations right off the bat. But that was that was powerful. The book you write, right? Because obviously, um, permission marketing changed the course of your career and, and everything that followed, right? Uh, but you've done like 8,500 blog posts like every single day, right? Is, is that your record or what? Do you have a, a live number? Uh, I don't look at the number very often. I definitely don't look at my stats, but I will tell you that it's more than 8,000 and there will be another one tomorrow. And that's the point. The point is I don't have to decide every day if there should be a blog post. I don't have to decide every day if it's blog word. I already decided there's going to be a post tomorrow. And what will go up tomorrow is the best post I have ready. Will it be my best post ever? I don't know. I won't know until after it's done. And decide once, and then you can have a practice. Well, before all the writing, you were actually an internet entrepreneur. So if we can go back, kind of going way back, maybe pre-acquisition by Yahoo, can you talk us through the early days of starting up your own businesses and, and you know where, where your journey began? Well, so let me just, for the youngsters in the room, meaning anyone who's under 55, let me talk about the birth of the internet. Um, I helped invent email marketing. <laughs> If you've ever used MailChimp or anything like that, it's because of the company that I started. Uh, but I got my first email address in 1976 when I was 16 years old. And interacting with people on mainframes by email taught me an enormous amount. And I started businesses shortly thereafter. And the whole idea of the businesses was not to build something to make the maximum amount of money. It was to be able to have the freedom to make a difference, the freedom to decide what to do tomorrow. Because I'm just not wired to do tomorrow what someone else tells me to do. I'd like to please my customers, please my audience, but I want to make a map. I don't want to follow a map. Having a compass is great. And so at the dawn of the internet, AOL, Prodigy, those were our clients. And when the World Wide Web came along, Mark, who worked for me, brought me an early copy of Mosaic, which became Netscape. And I said, this is stupid. I said, this is like Prodigy, but with no business model. It's slow and it's clunky and we can't make any money on this. Get rid of it. And my uh, arrogance in not seeing what was possible on the World Wide Web probably cost me $100 billion. And once you make a mistake that big, it gets easy after that. <laughs> That's incredible. Was it like in, I mean, in 76, getting your first email, um, what, that's not with a home computer. Like, where were you using a computer at that time, right? Like, you didn't have a, a, a desktop. There was no such thing. Uh, in 1976, yeah. there was this little room in my high school where they put the nerds. And in the corner of the nerd room, uh, they had a mainframe that was hooked up to the school district. And so you, it only had a printer, it didn't have a screen. So you would type things and it would then on the screen. And I 
built a version of Star Wars that you could, that you could play and it would just print G, 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 and that was normal. We didn't think it was slow. We thought that's the way computers work. Well, you talked about the, the like lesson in the failure of the oversight of, of seeing the, the power of the internet, the power of that browser, right? But um, how do you feel opportunities like even being in that room with a computer in the corner? Like what, what opportunities disproportionately affected the outcomes of your life? Oh, so much privilege. You know, I was born with people giving me the benefit of the doubt. I had amazing parents. We didn't have to worry about putting food on the table. There was an expectation that strangers were welcome in our house. Um, I don't take that for granted. And I don't think I ever have. Uh, my dad was the volunteer head of the United Way. My mom volunteered at the art museum. That's just the way I was raised. Um, but being born in 1960 in the United States, you know, if you read Gladwell's book, Outliers, he points out that it's not an accident that Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were the same age. It's not an accident that you're present when the world is changing. What's really fascinating is that in the last five years, the world is changing again. And there are a lot of people on this call who managed to make it through the pandemic looking at the mess that media and division have made of our lives, thinking that they are surrounded by nothing but pessimism. And that's a lot what the world felt like when I was starting my early companies. We are right now laying the groundwork for who is going to be leading tomorrow, right? That when the world changes is when there's opportunities for people who don't have power. So if you have enough technology to be watching the three of us talk, you have enough technology to show up and lead. And it's not going to be me. It's going to be you. People who get the joke, don't chase some NFT scam, but instead figure out what can create real value for real people and you can build something. So I, I want to sprinkle in some questions from our audience as we go whenever they're appropriate. And we've got this one asked by James Preston from Bear International, which is what is not changing in marketing channels and messaging today that also worked five or 15 years ago? Yeah, so I love the laws of physics. It doesn't matter what political party you're with, the laws of physics don't change. Newton's laws and, and the rest of it are real. Well, there is a law of physics about attention. And it's this, every day, everyone wakes up with 24 new hours to spend. And it doesn't matter where they are, or what they do, that's all they get. And attention is always going to be scarce, even more than real estate. Because you could, you know, build a dike and turn some ocean into real estate, but you can't make more attention. So who trusts you? Who gives you the benefit of the doubt? Who chooses to pay you in attention? Because too much of marketing has become about hustle. How do I steal attention? How do I trick people? How do I, you know, so much of the spam I get by right back to people who should know better. I'm just doing my job. Yeah, well, you decided to do a job that involved pretending you listen to my podcast and pitching someone to be a guest when I've never had a guest. So stop it. Go do something with your time that works with other people's attention in a way that they're glad to hear from you. That hasn't changed a bit, and I don't see it's going to change. And I think that trust is more scarce than ever before. And humanity is also becoming scarce, because I can't tell if that picture was built by Dali or Stable Diffusion or a human. Right? I can't tell if that voice on the phone is a real person or a script. Humanity is going to get more and more valuable as we 
decide where to allocate our trust. So the scarcity of attention is a constant, but where people put their attention changes. And so how can you know the audience that's listening now know where are the places that they should be putting their efforts or attracting attention? Right. So, you know, part of the magic of what you guys do is you help entrepreneurs think about what to standardize, think about what to scale, think about how to help people become not a mini version of the founder, but somebody who can bring skills to bear to create scale and leverage. And as somebody who right now is a freelancer, no employees, I alternate between having employees and not, but I'm best when I have none. Um, being an entrepreneur is a skill and figuring out how to do it at scale is a skill. It's not just being a freelancer with helpers. It's something else. And so as we think about opportunities going forward, someone has to win at TikTok, but it's probably not going to be you. Somebody has to be the flavor of the day that everyone's pointing to, but it's probably not going to be you. Waiting to win the influencer sweepstakes, I think your time is better spent building a foundational product or service that is resilient and worth talking about. Because when other people talk about you, you have way more leverage and power than if you demand that people listen to you talk about yourself. And I've tried to take that to heart. I've never promoted my blog. I don't hustle or hype my blog. I had 100 readers to my, for my blog for a year, only 100 people. But then I started writing things that people could share. And when they share it, it goes to new people, not because I want it to, but because they want it to. And that's how I got to a million. It's funny. I think in, in one sentence there, you probably said as much about what we at Train You will do as we have through this entire event because we share that ethos. Is like we're not here to like shout from our soapbox like what we do. We're here to bring value to ancillarily help uh, uh, you know the businesses that are tuning in, right? And we get those comments. It's like, well, what are you going to talk about what Train You will is? It's like, well, look it up. <laughs> we're we're here to bring you other value, right? Um, I'm curious, when we talk about where the attention is um, and, and like how to have a real meaningful uh, relationship with the people that you, you hope to get attention from, a big buzzword is community. You wrote Tribes in 2008 about building tribes, about building community. What would change if you wrote Tribes today? Is there anything that's people. different about how community... Yeah, is built today. Uh, and the first thing I'd say is, uh, I meant absolutely no disrespect to uh, First Peoples, uh, Native people. And a few people have been offended by the title. I don't think the title is a problem, but I would change that. Because for a long time, we have disrespected the people who came before. And we have way too little respect in our world. After saying that, I would say that too much pressure is put on us to reach everyone. And our real opportunity is to reach someone, the smallest viable audience. To matter to a few people is way more important than to be noticed by everyone. So in my case, you know, I've written some bestsellers, but not one of them, not one has reached more than 1% of the US population. It's enough, right? That if you can figure out how to matter to a few people, it's scarier 
then having to say, you can pick anyone and I'm anyone. Trying to figure out how to race to the bottom on Upwork, what a waste of time. If you could be missed if you were gone, that's important. The second thing that I would address is that social networks aren't really social and they tend not to be networks. And doing what Mark or Jack or whoever makes money doing isn't your job. Your job is to weave together a community of people who would miss each other. And so the communities that I've built, and you know, this one you mentioned this book, I'm a volunteer. I've worked full time on this for the last year. Um, I don't make a penny from it. There are 2,000 of us in the community online building it with each other. 300 people wrote it together. Mm. In five months, we wrote a 97,000 word book. We edited it, we designed it, we laid it out, we fact checked it. That's only possible because I brought empathy to the table. The humility to say, I don't know how to do any of these steps. Let me find people, celebrate people, connect people who can. And when you're an entrepreneur, that's hard to do because there's all this pressure on you to be right and all this pressure on you to do it right now. Do you think that there's such a thing as community overload or tribe overload if, if everyone's trying to create communities or is it maybe just there, there's not the authenticity that there should be in building those groups? So you brought up a couple of my favorite words. So the first one is people have said, blah, 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 you're a tribe. I don't have a tribe. And Trainual doesn't either. If we're lucky, we get to talk to an existing tribe that would be there even if we didn't exist, right? So Fast Company figured out how to talk to the kind of people who like my work. And then I was lucky enough to be a columnist for them and wrote more words than anybody because they were already there. And I got to show up and narrate for them. So there is a real limit on anybody who can have their own tribe. But there is a shortage of people who can lead with generosity for tribes that already want to be connected. And then the second thing, which I'm controversial about, but happy to rant all day, authenticity is a crock. Nobody wants you to be authentic. They just don't. That if Ricky Lee Jones has a sore throat and you go to her concert, you don't want her to authentically sing poorly. You want her to bring the best version of herself to that evening because that's when you are there. People don't want authenticity. They want consistency. They want to know that even when they're not watching, you're acting the way you said you were going to act. Choosing to be consistent is what a professional does. Authenticity is lazy and selfish. It says, I'm going to act whatever way I feel like, and you better put up with it. Well, we love consistency here. So I appreciate that point of view. Thank you. And now you mentioned the smallest viable market, smallest viable audience also. And so maybe that's something that's that's controversial because especially in our world, in the software world, you hear investors talk about the total addressable market and you want to serve this huge market. How big is your TAM and and you know, see these huge numbers? And so for most of the businesses listening, how should they be thinking about their target market, their target customer? So let's name any company except, you know, some of the biggest social networks in the world, right? Starbucks, Nike, even Apple. Would you be happy to be them? Because they don't have the majority. We're not running for elected office. We're trying to do work that matters for people who care. So find the people who care and then do work that matters for them. And what that means is that a million people 
paying you, you know, $50 a year, that's more than enough. That's an astonishing amount of money for anybody who's watching this call. A million people. There's 7 billion people in your total addressable market. The reason we resist it as entrepreneurs is we want to be able to treat customers as fungible and replaceable because there's just more people over there. Let's run an ad on the Super Bowl. We'll be fine. But the internet has no mass market. There is no website, not one, except for Google and Facebook. Those are the only websites that reach more people every day than what a big TV show did in the 1980s. It's all micro. It's not macro. So figure out who you stand for and who you're trying to reach. And don't worry about everybody. Ignore them. Shun the non-believers. The only product with the biggest, the, the 7 billion addressable market is oxygen, I think. <laughs> Everything else is very, should be very niche, right? That's true. Um, how do you think about, though, the, like the marketing mix to address your, your core customer, right? Be, like when you're trying to balance brand versus demand, when you're trying to balance awareness to acquisition and really build a healthy funnel, that's where a lot of people often get pulled into like, okay, well, brand and awareness, that means mass market. That means everybody has to know about me. Everybody has to talk about me so that a few people want to buy, right? Like what's, how do you find parity between those two things when you're just trying to talk to the ones that might matter? Psychographics versus demographics. For the first hundred years of marketing, all we cared about was demographics because that's all we could care about. What's your age? What's your zip code? Uh, what's your income? What's your gender? What's your race? What magazines do you read? Maybe that's all that was available. But now we can know what do you dream of? What do you seek? What are you clicking on? So we look for the psychographic because you've already decided who you are. You've already decided where you want to go. So a simple example, which I keep tons of around here, bean to bar chocolate, right? These chocolate bars cost 10 or $15. As you should keep tons of chocolate bars. Correct. But most people don't have $15 chocolate bars sitting around, right? They're eating junky Halloween candy. I can't tell from this the curb when I look at your house if you're the kind of person that wants amazing, thoughtful, moral, connected, delicious, remarkable $15 chocolate or crap that costs a buck at the supermarket. But when Sean Askinosi, my friend, started one of the first bean-to-bark chocolate companies, he said, I bet there are people like me who would cross the street and go out of their way for the story and the experience of this. That's who it's for. And if you show up at Askinosi and say, can I buy some Halloween candy? They say no. And that's the secret. Find out what the people you serve believe, only serve them and ignore the rest. Figure out what people want, believe, dream of, what they're afraid of. That's how we serve them. Do you think there's a correlation between that really niche focus and high price. You know, I have a friend that has an audio company for, you know, high, ultra high fidelity kind of speakers, but they're priced so high and similar to the chocolate is, is the luxury of picking a small market uh, also giving you the ability to charge more or no correlation? So I'm an audiophile. So I, I need to know which speaker company you're talking about, but we'll leave that aside for another <laughs> time. Um, if you look at, Headphones like Beats, which were designed for the mass market. They sound terrible if you're an audiophile, and they're expensive. 
but the mass market bought them because of status and prestige. If you're the kind of person that wanted to walk around outdoors and show people that you, quote, have good taste, unquote, about the music you're listening to, Beats would broadcast that to everybody. Now, I can tell you brands of $3,000 headphones that sound way better for people who believe that that's what they want. But I can also point out that Grado headphones, which are made in Brooklyn, cost less than Beats, are for a very specific audience. And you could buy them if you want, and they sound better if that's your taste. So if you want to go after high price and high margin, you have to be specific. But you can also be specific and serve people without necessarily being the most expensive one in the, in the market. They don't have to go together. Got it. Okay. We got to get back into the daily blogs that you write, the daily posts, because over 8,000 posts, I know a lot of people that suffer from the creativity block, writer's block. And you mentioned, yeah, I, Seth, I talked to you about this on the on a call uh, a couple of weeks ago, right? Is that like when I saw you at the HubSpot keynote years ago, maybe seven, um, one of the things that stood out to me was like, it's like a lot of people have writer's block or they say they do, but there's there's really no such thing as talker's block. So just reframe how you're thinking about writing and that it's like, you're not, you're not writing to the computer. You're talking to an audience, Correct. to a person. Writer's block, right? Writer's so block is, it, it's mythical. It's made up. There's no such thing. And there's uh, something on Google that you can search how, wh which words were used every year in books since 1850. And you can see the year that writer's block started showing up. Before that, there was none. Mary Shelley's uh, failed husband, uh, Percy Shelley, the poet, invented the whole idea. And the reason mm. that writer's block exists is because we're afraid of bad writing, not because we are unable to write. And when the stakes are high, when you say, oh my God, all these people are going to read this, then writer's block shows up. But the answer, which my friend Isaac Asimov taught me, we worked together when I was 23, is simply write. He sat at his time. He wrote, he published 400 books in his lifetime. And I said, Isaac, how did you do that? And he said, it's simple. Every morning at 6.30, I sit at this typewriter. It was a little manual typewriter. And I type until noon, and then I'm done. And it doesn't matter if what I'm typing is good. I still have to type. And what happens is your subconscious says, well, if I got to type, I might as well type something good. And if you type for three, four, five hours a day, I promise you, as hard as you try, to write only bad stuff, good stuff is going to come through. And so knowing that there's going to be a blog post tomorrow, all day long, I'm seeing things, engaging with people. Oh, I'm going to steal that idea. And I write it up and I write five or six blog posts a day. And the best one is the next one. And so you know how to walk. You didn't know how to walk when you were born. You toddled. Toddlers walk poorly in service of walking well. But if they said, I'm just going to wait until I'm a really good walker before I try, nobody would ever walk. Can I, can I get very practical for like how to apply this for, for people that are like, you know, that we work with that are using Trainual that we hear all the time when you're trying to document processes in a business, like people just don't know how to start or where to start or when to start. And that's like their biggest hurdle is like, the, it's, it's similar, right? It's not just writing a blog post, but it's writing down the processes in their business, which seems silly because it's like, you do these things. You don't have to come up with something new. This is how you work. Just write it down. What is the blocker there? 
and how can right. people actually start? I'm really glad we're talking about this. So uh, I wrote a book called The Practice that is about being a toddler, right? One interview question that's often misused when you're hiring somebody for any sort of process job is please tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And inevitably, someone who hasn't heard that before will screw up because they make all these assumptions about how they understand to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And someone who has never made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich wouldn't know. Like, for example, you have to put the peanut butter on before you put on the jelly. Because if you put the jelly on first, the peanut butter is going to skid off the bread, right? So I began my career writing manuals for a software company. And what you learn from that, if you then answer the phone at customer services, if you write the manual wrong, the phone rings a lot because you didn't say, put the floppy into the Commodore 64. You just said, type this thing. And they didn't do that step. So part of what needs to happen is you got to learn how to write a recipe. But the other part, which is super important, is you have to write it wrong. You have to write it wrong and write it wrong and write it wrong. You have to build a process where people give you feedback and you don't have to apologize and you don't feel bad because you are learning. This is why curbs exist on the street. If when you're learning to drive, you hit the curb, you don't, you didn't offend the curb. The curb is just there to let you know that you are near the sidewalk. Go back toward the street. So where is your curb? How are you practicing this process? Right? Like I've been really enjoying uh, watching the chat fly by. But what people are commenting on mostly is I've practiced more than they have. And the way I've practiced is by doing this wrong, by speaking in public wrong, by saying things that didn't resonate with people until I figured out things that did resonate with people. And the magic of Trainual is you're saying to people, it needs to get done. Stop asking employees to read your mind. And it's safe to do it wrong on the way to doing it right. Because if you don't start, you're never going to get good at it. I love that. You know, I always thought the curbs existed because the people that sell the uh, rims uh, put them there because my tires always get scratched up so that they, they must be involved somehow. But people that are documenting process in their business, you're right. I think they're frozen. They're paralyzed maybe by wanting to be perfectionists. And so the message you're saying, you know, just do it, do it wrong, understand it's going to be wrong is important. And so should they be telling their teams, you know, this is just our current best way, break it, ask questions, iterate on it? So I got, I got two stories for you, um, both from big companies, one bigger than the other. The first was Sleepy's Mattresses, which at one point had 70 uh, mattress stores in New York. And I'm in a Sleepy's Mattress waiting for the person I'm with to buy a mattress. And the phone rings. And you can see the person behind the desk get all tense. And then he answers the phone and says, hello, Mr. Sleepy. And apparently, Mr. Sleepy, who was 75 years old at the time, every day called every single one of the, of the 70 Sleepy stores. That was his only job. And when you answered the phone, he said, what's wrong? And if you couldn't tell him one thing that was wrong, he fired you. But if you could tell him something about the store that wasn't working the way it needed to, he would get it fixed. That's all he did all day is find out what wasn't working and then fix it. Paul Orfalia, yeah. who started Kinko's, who I did a project with a long time ago, Paul Orfalia had severe dyslexia. He was functionally illiterate. And he built 
Kinko's to a company he sold to FedEx for almost a billion dollars by visiting Kinko's in person, walking in and saying, what did you come up with that's interesting that's working? And then he would go tell all the other Kinko stores what that person had figured out. So, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to work with organizations that have lots of retail establishments. I'm not a consultant, but I happen to be married to somebody who has four stores. And you need to create a culture where you can say to the clerk, that's not how we do things around here. And they could say, but that's what I was told. And now you just discovered something that didn't work. But if you're all hung up with, I can't say anything or I'll hurt their feelings, or you're all hung up with, if the boss tells me I did something wrong, I'm in trouble, nothing's going to get better. And so it's like software debugging. No one writes a program that runs the first time. Debugging is what programming is really about. That's such an important reframe in the mindset, right? It's like standard operating procedures are just that. They're standard. Doesn't mean they are best, but it's how it's currently done. Doesn't mean you can't make a difference and improve upon it. Yeah. She call them uh, broken oper bops, bro broken operating <laughs> procedures. Like, what's what's wrong around here? I'm going to start asking for bops. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, um, or, I noticed or, in the background, you know, or what could be, or what could be better. And it's it's challenging to say what could be better because it implies something could be better. But the alternative is everything is perfect, and if everything is perfect, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> we actually just did a survey that we were joking about this. We were asking people, you know, what was wrong in your business? And there was one answer at the very bottom that like 2.8% of people picked that was nothing. And we just thought, okay, 2.8% of people are liars because <laughs> that's, that can't be true. Um, all right. So I can see linchpin behind you kind of blurred out, but um, obviously a, a huge hit, a, a incredible book. But one of the things I wanted to bring up with you is the idea of being uh, indispensable in a business and whether it's something that people should aspire to being indispensable in a business or whether someone actually might want to be replaceable, meaning that they could have someone step in and do their job and they are, they're not, you know, stuck in the burden of this position forever. So what do you think about that? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, there's a book, I don't agree with all of it, but part of it is really good. The E-Myth Revisited. And it talks about yeah. um, working on your business instead of in your business, which is the key part of what you guys do. Um, but there's another part of it that says you should design every job so that the dumbest possible person could do it. Because then the idea is you can just push everything down to the cheapest possible component. And I have a problem with that, particularly in an age of AI and offshoring where there's a race to the bottom. And the point of linchpin is actually not that anyone is indispensable because no one is. It's would you be missed if you were gone? Do you bring something unique to the work, something human that isn't just what's in the manual? Because the fact is that the vast majority of your customers aren't doing things by the book every day. That's why people pick them instead of the giant soulless corporations that they could pick instead that bringing humanity and care to the interactions within the company or to the customer is something that's hard to find at a giant telecom, but much more likely to be found in a company with 100 or 500 or 50 people in it. So celebrate that. Figure out how do you let someone bring their whole self to work when it comes to caring, when it comes to bringing emotional labor, 
to the work they do. Because the fact is, just to pick a simple example, every single person who goes to buy clothes is wearing clothes. Naked people don't go shopping for clothes. So they already have clothes. What is it that they're there to buy? What they're there to buy is a story, the way it makes them feel to transact, the way it makes them feel to shop. So if you train your people to just woodenly walk up to someone and say, can I help you? And the other person says, I'm just looking. And then they walk away. You've added no value whatsoever. But if you give people the freedom and the responsibility to show up as humans, then they can be someone you would miss if they weren't there. And I think that that is critically important. Well, I wish we had more time to text Michael Gerber and get him on here for a debate. Uh, I, he, he wrote the, uh, the intro to my book, so we've known him for a while. But I agree with you that you, we don't want things to be done by just anyone that walks off the street. And I think what makes you indispensable in a company is your ability to constantly be reaching for a new role taking on new responsibilities and, and creating a new role for yourself. Because if you stay in the same role forever, you're not indispensable. If you stay in the same position forever, then that, that's what makes you replaceable. And so you want to be replaceable in each of the roles that you grow through and you're indispensable by growing. I think if, if you would agree with that. Yeah, and there's lots of different kinds of growing. You know, there are people who have had the same job title for a long time but they've grown in terms of the responsibility, the trust, the impact, the leverage, the knowledge, all of those things, right? But if, you're, if your mantra is, you can pick anyone and we're anyone, and your employee's mantra is, I'm just doing my job, then you've just signed up for mediocrity because mediocrity and average are exactly the same thing. Seth, what, how would you help people overcome the fear of being replaced, right? Like that's often the aversion to document the way that I, I work, right? It's because, well, if you know how I do my thing, then you don't need me and you might just get somebody else. And so it's like, I want to retain my special secret sauce in my head. Like how, how do we coach um, any employee? that being yeah. like actually documenting that and being replaceable is actually a good thing to help you step to the, the next step. So let's start by talking about fear. And then I would love to dive into that specific thing. Uh, yeah. The difference between people who run a 20 mile marathon and quit and people who finish the Boston marathon is not that the finishers yes. don't get tired, <laughs> right? That the people who finish get just as tired as the people who quit at mile 20. The difference is that the people who finish figure out where to put the tired. That's the key. You can't go to a coach and say, teach me how to not get tired. If you really want to be an entrepreneur, if you really want to be a contributor to an organization, you're going to have to figure out where to put the fear. And feeling the fear, acknowledging the fear, naming it is the first step to dancing with it. And in your case, this question about, well, what if they know my secrets? Uh, friends of mine run a company called Penguin Magic. And even if you're not a magician, it's worth checking out. It's fun. Penguin Magic is filled with magicians who show uh, their trick being performed and then for 20 bucks will sell another magician how they do it. And some magicians go to the grave with their secrets hidden. But great magicians are constantly teaching other magicians how they did it. Because your secrets aren't why you're a great magician. 
The reason you're a great magician is you know what to do with the secrets and you know how to invent new secrets. You know how to solve interesting problems. But once you've solved a problem, it's not interesting anymore. Teach other people how to solve it too. Because the more that we give away and teach the people around us how we do what we're doing, the more frontiers are opened in front of us to solve new interesting problems. And that's what makes you a linchpin. It's like a scarcity mindset. If you think, oh, I give away what I do and there's nothing left, it's very scarcity. Whereas if you think I give away what I do and it inspires me to start doing other things, I can keep growing. It's in the, more of an abundance way of thinking. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And when I got to college, uh, Buffalo chicken wings were just starting to be on the radar. And I said to my roommates, well, I'm from Buffalo. So I picked up the phone and I called the Anchor Bar where Buffalo chicken wings were first created in their form. And the woman who runs it answered the phone. And I said, Hi, I'm calling from Boston. I've been a customer for years. What's the recipe? And she told me because the Anchor Bar wasn't successful because they figured out how to make dirt, mixed turkey Frank's hot sauce with margarine. They were successful because they were the Anchor Bar. And the more people who made chicken wings, the better they did. They're giving away that secret recipe. It's exactly what you should do. I actually had no idea Buffalo wings came from Buffalo, New York. Is that a real thing? That is a real thing. I assumed it has something to do with the Buffalo animal, which I guess is dumb in retrospect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. That's a, that's a takeaway for me today. That's so funny. Okay, so let's let's jump to another question we've got here. Uh, Tamara Kemper from the Process Mavens. Um, she said, I know the power of having strong systems in my business, and I want my business to be a place where people feel inspired to create magic and connect. I know they're not mutually exclusive, but how do you think about achieving both of these? So I guess kind of balancing creativity with systemization. So if you want to be a jazz musician, you need to know all the standards. You need to know the scales. You need to know how to listen and you need to know how to play in tune. And only after you do all of those things do you get to be Miles Davis or Christian McBride or Cyrilla May. You need to have this foundation. And the mistake we make is we teach kids to memorize the music and to play it as written. And we forget to teach them to be musicians. And this is true for your business. That's one of the challenges of franchises. Franchises say you have to do every single thing exactly this way or you get in trouble because we want every subway to be exactly the same. Well, yeah, but when that happens, you're only making $42,000 a year. At some point, you need to solve an interesting problem. And that's where the music comes. First, you need the tactics and the technique, and then you get to do the great work. It's kind of balancing that art and science, I guess, right? You've got the foundation of how to do things, but then you need to be a musician. You need to have the freedom to create and be an artist. And I think it's the same in our businesses. There's a standardization, a, a way to do things, but we all have the creativity to innovate. You know, it's funny. Tomorrow we're talking to Ali Webb. She was the founder of Dry Bar. And so we're going to talk about that, that franchise thing. And I think that's a great topic to ask her about. It's just how do you... Oh, yeah creativity have a place there yeah you you should say hi for me um she is a superstar okay and, uh, michael landau used to work with me um michael and i have talked about standardization at dry bar a lot uh 
the magic of dry bar is not that there's only the manual that tells you how to do it right. The magic is a human being is going to look you in the eye and exert emotional labor to make a connection with you while they happen to be giving you a blowout. But you're not there for the blowout. You're there for the way the human being made you feel. And that's hard to standardize. You can't uh, have a script for every scenario and every conversation with every person. So interesting. Exactly. So uh, we got another question here from Lisa Marie Vasquez, which is, uh, I guess, related to how you make people feel and a lot of the topics that we covered today. But how do you change the culture in an organization where, where there has been little accountability? So how do you change the culture anywhere? What is culture? Culture is people like us do things like this. If you tolerate a bully because he has good sales numbers, you have just made it very clear that it's okay to be a bully as long as you have great sales numbers. On the other hand, if you call a company meeting and fire the bully in front of everybody, you've now established what it's like around here. People like us do things like this. That when the CEO is just doing process and doesn't care about an individual consumer, don't be surprised if that's the way the customer service people act as well. So the thing about accountability is if all you're offering people is a chance to accept blame, I don't think it's likely that you're going to have a lot of people lining up to sign up for the accountability train, that it needs to be part of something. And it needs to be part of ownership and authority and agency. Those things are the things you get when you add accountability in. But if all you're doing is looking for who do I get to blame today, I think your culture might need some work. Seth, in, in the early days of building Yo-Yo Dine and Squidoo, like what performance management failures did you have? So I will tell you two highlights while I'm trying to think of the best, most vivid failure other than losing billions and billions of dollars by ignoring the internet. Um, the, at one point we had 17 people doing inside sales where we were calling people we had permission to call and selling them uh, internet clicks long before anybody on the internet was selling clicks from banners. And we gave them all a $29 Radio Shack tape recorder. And we said, record all your calls, please. And then on Friday, bring your best call to a meeting. And so what the meeting consisted of was each person playing their best three minutes for the other people. And that did a couple really cool things. First of all, it was a form of standardization and giving people agency and ownership. It elevated each person's contribution and it let them teach the other people their best lines, their best uh, approaches, their best interactions. At the same time, the person who was running the sales team had had a great string of six months with no major screw-ups. And I took him aside and I said, if you don't have a major screw-up soon, I'm going to fire you in front of everybody in the company the way I was going to fire that bully. And I said, because if we create a culture where only successes are tolerated, people aren't going to try. They're not going to be willing to risk a mistake. And he knew I meant it. And so... He um, pushed into new areas, and half the time he was successful and half the time he failed, which is exactly what we needed. In terms of my biggest failure, I would say for sure 
my biggest failure were failures of omission, things I didn't do that I should have done. We had 70 employees and 52 of them reported directly to me that I was so busy being a freelancer with assistance that I was solving every interesting problem I could find. And I wasn't developing enough people to build an institution. And that's one of the reasons that we sold the company to Yahoo, which I don't regret, but it was going to, I was going to melt. I couldn't continue to scale by being the center of all of these conversations, but I didn't trust myself enough yet to say I could build a system and a process that could scale without me doing it. Wow, 52 direct reports. I can't even imagine. Like you, It was you so fun. Like when it worked, it was great. <laughs> because like all day long, all I did was someone would say this and someone would say that. They tried this, tried this, tried this, tried this, tried this. Ah, crazy. It, it reminds me of like one of those old time operators with like the, all the plugs right. and just like constantly yeah. answering phones. Yeah, that sounds nuts. Seth, you talked about having a uh, a whole sales team, right? Of what was that, 16, 19, some, something like that? Um, 17 people. If you were 17, okay, I was close. Uh, <laughs> um, if you were running a sales team now, what what would you do differently? I think a lot of people are struggling with sales in the current climate and uh, it, it's seeming less and less and less like cold DMs on LinkedIn is the, is the right playbook. <laughs> okay, so spam isn't marketing and cold DMs aren't sales. Uh, so let's be really clear what sales are worth doing. If you meet somebody who says they were on the sales team at Google in the early years, what they're saying is they had a job at Google, but the sales, that wasn't them. Google ads sold themselves and to a large extent still do. I would imagine 95% of Google ads sell themselves. So selling is largely an artifact of good marketing and marketing is making something people want to buy and talk about. So job number one, before I would build a sales team is, how do I build a contagious, viral, useful service or product that spreads without me having to call people on the phone? The second thing, my book, Permission Marketing, is about anticipated personal and relevant messages delivered to the people who want to get them. And there's a couple books that I would strongly recommend. One is uh, Spin Selling, which isn't about spin, and the other one is let's get real or let's not play. And let's get real or let's not play is fantastic. And it's about business to business selling, encouraging the client to say, look, I'm here to sell you something because it's going to make your life better. If you don't want me to sell you something, we should stop right now. But let's get real or let's not play. And if we're going to get real, here's what I, we need to begin with. If I have something that's going to help your career and your organization, you need to show me your org chart, your problems, what you guys are facing, and what your competitive options are. Because if we can't do it together, I don't want to do it with you. Call somebody else. Here's the phone number of my competition. Play games with them. When you're ready to not play games, I'm here to solve your problem. That's real selling. That's what professional salespeople do. Hustling people and hyping people, I think you should just skip that part of the day. Part of marketing and selling is, I guess, uh, this is kind of a buzzword, but thought leadership and presenting and speaking. So one of the questions we got for you is how to get better at public speaking and presenting. You're on huge stages around the world. And so what tips do you have on presenting? 
So I wasn't very good at it. I don't think anyone is naturally very good at it. I know a lot of very well-known TED speakers, and I would say almost every single one of them is an introvert. That, you know, Brene Brown isn't going to come to your house and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, and neither is Simon Sinek. And, um, you know, my friend, the late Sir Ken Robinson, could sit for hours without saying a word because this isn't about naturally and authentically being gregarious in front of people. It's a craft and you can learn to get better at it. And the only way I knew know to get better at it is to do it. And the way I did it was back a long time ago, there was a conference called Internet World and they got reviews of every single one of their 400 speakers. And the first time I spoke, my ranking was 365. And I decided, this is when I worked for free, and I decided that my goal was to work my way all the way up. And I looked at what people who had high scores were doing, and I thought, oh, I see that, or I see that, or no one's ever tried this, and you see what works. Doing it on Zoom is so much harder because you can't tell what's working. But doing it in person, and if you want to start with a dog or a cat, start with a dog or a cat. Figure out how to just say five sentences in a row that someone else wants to hear. It's a performance and it's generous. You're doing it to help somebody else learn something. And so I don't think you should look at slick TED Talks that are filled with jokes. I think you should look at talks that change the way other people think or act, even in the small. Can you persuade one person to do one thing? And I, I'll give you one last example and then I'll give you the mic back. One of the things I talk about when I run uh, various seminars is take a $20 bill and go to the bus station and see if you can sell the $20 bill to somebody for $5. It's incredibly difficult to do because you don't get the benefit of the doubt and they have no trust. But if you put a $20 bill in your neighbor's mailbox three days in a row, and then on the fourth day, ring the doorbell and say, I'm the guy who's been putting $20 bills in your mailbox. I got another one. We just buy it for five bucks. You'll have no trouble selling it because we earn the benefit of the doubt. That's an incredible example. Have you ever done that as like a, a, a video to try to sell? I, I, it's, it's inside uh, the marketing seminar workshop that I built, I think. That's so cool. I love that. The, 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 today you've had, you know, dozens of these stories and examples. And I think part of presenting and performing is having those stories at the ready. So do you have just a, a bank of these? Do you work in the off hours on coming up with these examples from your history? Is I know I'm getting into the nitty gritty here, but it's helpful for, at least for me as an <laughs> audience of one. So I decided a really long time ago that if I didn't know how something worked, I was going to ask myself how it worked until I figured it out. Refrigerators are not magic. Electricity is not magic. The success of Starbucks is not magic. That person got elected. It wasn't magic. Why did it happen? And if I can't figure it out, I got to keep asking myself until I do. And every once in a while, you come up with one that's worth sharing. And so most people go through the world saying, how am I going to get to where I'm going today? And I go through the world looking for things I don't understand so I can figure them out and then share them with other people. I got to tell you, there's one thing I can't figure out right now that I've been working on for a long time. I even 
talk to the co-founder of Netflix about this. Someone needs to explain it to me. Here you go. When Netflix launched streaming, they did binge. And the reason that they let you binge shows like House of Cards is because no one else would. So it was this huge competitive advantage, this huge buzzworthy thing of you could go have all you wanted. But now binging costs them billions of dollars a year. They should just stop. It also hurts their word of mouth because if every single episode of the next show was only on you know, once a week new, then the next day everyone would talk about it. But you're afraid to talk about it now because you don't want to do any spoilers. So I said to him, why are you doing that? He said, I don't know. You'll have to talk to Reed because it's what we've always done. So if someone knows the answer to the binge thing, put it in the chat. I would love to know. Reed would hate that. Somebody just needs to tag him. I, I remember um, asking him, this was like 15 years ago, but asking, you know, why wouldn't they do uh, PlayStation games and things like that? And this was when they were doing all DVDs. And it was because they were moving into streaming. And they said, we're not in the business of shipping discs around. We're in the business of delivering, you know, uh, entertainment video. And and it was, a, he's very visionary. So I think if he heard you say that, he'd like, freak out so we should share this video yeah we, we can send it to him <laughs> Seth, around you just asking that question and then going through that process of just trying to figure it out right i think that one of the most important assets in anybody is curiosity i think the top performers that i've ever seen anywhere are innately curious and have that hunger to figure it out right but you can't always identify curiosity in somebody when they're interviewing and hiring? Like, what would you look for in a candidate that you are trying to build an amazing roster of people um, to identify innate curiosity? So I've hired thousands of people, maybe hundreds, and I've learned a lot doing it. And what I've learned is you shouldn't interview people for a job. It's a complete trap. It makes absolutely no sense. It's like picking people for your college based on the SAT. All you're lurking for is who's good at interviewing. And so if you have a company where people get interviewed for a living, then that's a good way to hire them. But other than that, it doesn't make any sense. The best way I know to hire people is to work with them first, give them a project, pay them money to do a thing. Because when someone is doing a thing, you can see how they do the thing. And that seems so obvious. And it's not particularly difficult to do, but it means you have to give away your power and you have to give away this magical thing you think you have, which is you can tell who's a winner or not based on a five minute or an hour long interview. A, a design firm I know, once someone becomes a finalist, because they just got to whittle people down somehow, they say, all right, now you need to come to a design review, bring us your portfolio and we're going to criticize it. And then you're going to tell us why your portfolio is good because that's what they do all day at work. So that's what they do as a way to see if they want to work with somebody. So try them out because you can pay them to do it. And with things like Upwork and the rest, it's so super easy to do that now. If someone is good when you're working with them now, they'll probably be good when you're working with them later. Now, I've seen some posts you know, on, uh, floating around on LinkedIn of people not wanting to do those projects or those sample works. E even if it's paid, they just kind of want to get through a, a, a job. Do you, do you think that they just need to <laughs> do it? Don't hire them. Hire somebody else. There's yeah. a lot of people to choose from. <laughs> I totally get why somebody who has been indoctrinated their whole life 
to show up, get an A on the test, put on your resume, get picked, and go to work where it's safe and secure when you're doing what you're told. That person wants to interview and get the next safe spot. Totally get it. But the people who are watching this call, that's not the kind of organizations they're trying to build. So don't hire people like that and expect them to act differently than they're telling you they want to act, right? If you want to find people who would be missed when they're gone, who are curious, who are going to challenge convention, who are going to tell you how to make things better, start by looking for people who do that all the time. Well said. Where do you find the inspiration for your daily ideas? How do you continue to draw inspiration? You know, as I'm getting older, it's easier to get tired. But the thing that gets me untired every time are my readers, are the people on this call, are the two of you. That to show up and have it resonate with people, I'm just totally hooked on that. What a privilege to be able to narrate this. And, you know, when I was coming up, I needed more connection. I was a lonely entrepreneur. Being connected with other people who are on the journey is priceless. And the fact that I get to do that a little bit and, you know, with the Carbon Almanac to do it all day, it's just thrilling. Love it. Amazing. It's incredible. I love it. So um, for those who don't really know what Carbon Almanac is, uh, I know we've, we're right at the top of the hour here. Like what do you, you want to give the little spiel so people can get tuned into this and potentially join sure. that community? Uh, the short version is 16 years ago, I wrote my first blog post about climate change didn't solve the problem. Uh, the problem has gotten significantly worse. But I found myself hesitant to talk about it because I had been indoctrinated into believing that my carbon footprint made me too much of a hypocrite and because it was too complicated. And so I said, well, if I'm confused, I bet you other people are confused too. Well, I know how to make almanacs. I've made more almanacs than most people. And so what we built is charts and graphs and tables and prose and cartoons and cartoons and cartoons that are all footnoted. So you can, in the safety of your own home, look this up and get smart. And you can discover, did you know concrete's 8% of our problem? I didn't know concrete was any percent of our problem. I didn't know concrete was a problem. It is a problem, the really big problem. So you start to mm -hmm. see the system. And for me, we have a systems problem. And the only chance for us to move forward is to find a systems solution. And system solutions don't involve plastic recycling, which is a scam and a sham. It doesn't work. But system solutions involve talking about it. And if you're afraid to talk about it, it's not going to change. So the Almanac exists, and we've got a free daily email and 40 podcasts and a free kid's book and a teacher's guide all built by volunteers. None of us touch a penny so that we would talk about it. And if you go to the carbonalmanac.org, you can talk about it too. Seth, well, we are really passionate about solving systems problems. Uh, <laughs> as, as you know, we've talked about systems and processes a lot here. So uh, I think that's just incredible and can't wait to dig in a little bit more. Thank you so much for sharing all the wisdom today. We got so many great sound bites and, and clips that we're just I'm sure going to be replaying. And this has been incredible. So thank you for spending your time here with us. Uh, we really appreciate you. Well, thank you both. And thanks to everyone who tuned in. Go make a ruckus, everybody. We'll see you.
Hey, thanks for listening to Organized Chaos. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, or share it with anyone in your network that you think could benefit from this information. For episode show notes, podcast recaps, and tons of other small business news and inspiration, check out the manual. That's trainual.com backslash manual.